can we just thank the Spates family for leading us this morning? Careful not to overburden our people. That's why we've kind of got a mix of guests and, and, and our guys. In my notebook, I have the names of everyone who's leading. And every time I've written Spates Save One, I've written Spates Family Groove. And I feel good about that. So I, I'm really into naming bands now. So if you have your Bibles for our Father's Day sermon, I would like for you to open to Malachi chapter 3. Uh, Malachi chapter 3. This has nothing to do with being a father. And we encourage you dads. Don't stink at it. So, um, Malachi chapter 3 is where the, the bulk of our text, but we're going to pick up in chapter 17, and we're going to go to chapter 3, 3 verse 12. And, and while you're turning there, the weird thing is, I, I'm in this uh, space in life where I'm, I'm considering my, my childhood, I'm thinking about what I grew up in, uh, my Christian tradition, and I would assume that my Christian tradition is very much like your Christian tradition. Uh, for many of us, we grew up and we had a denomination that we were part of, and more than likely you were in a, what's considered a low church denomination. Now, I'm not sure, you may be different there, but for me, I grew up in a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church, and if you were in a Southern Baptist or church or something like that, at the end of a sermon, there was always this unique moment where there was an expectation of response. When the pastor wrapped up his sermon, regardless if he had just preached to the saints that day and the believers in the room, we want to make sure that we try to do everything we can to uh, draw lost people and have a conversation with them, and that's beneficial and helpful. But there would be times where we would miss the forest for the trees with that approach. Uh, when we look through the scriptures, what we find more than often, more than we realize is the Bible's always calling for a response. Uh, we had our high school kids at a camp where they had a you know, mediocre camp pastor a couple of weeks ago. And in the middle of that, we have a conversation with the uh, director of the camp. And he would have questions coming to him from Baptist and Baptist-style churches. And they would always ask, hey, how many decisions were made? And... He always replies to people, because, and that comes from a healthy place in a sense. How many people made a decision? And he would always reply, well, I'm sure there were thousands of decisions that were made this week. I think that some students decided that they were going to uh, make a better decision in regard to the relationships that they're in. Some people made decisions to follow after Jesus. Some people just decided to stop drinking soda because they're driving people crazy. There are always decisions that are there to be made. And when we look in the book of Malachi this morning, it does call for response from us. Every one of us who would claim to have faith relationship with Jesus, this passage is going to talk to you. And sometimes when the Bible talks to you, it's hard to hear. This is a hard to hear passage on Father's Day of 2021. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Malachi, let me just give you a little bit of a background as to what's been taking place. Uh, the book's made up of these six oracles. I don't love the word oracle. I prefer the word burden. Because these are the burdens that the people have brought to Yahweh. And Malachi is using expressive language to, to demonstrate in the best way possible these burdens that are being brought to, to Yahweh from these people are wrapped up things. When you look into chapter 1 of Malachi, I mean, right out of the bat, God leads with, I have loved you. And the burden that he deals with in regard to these people is, well, how have you really loved us? God addresses in, in them in, cha in chapter 1 as well that um, 
they had despised and defiled his name. Those are the second and third burdens. And the response of the people was, well, how have we despised you and how have we defiled your name? We have a tonal interpretation of this passage that is intentional from the author. Well, how is this really happening? We move from those first three burdens, which are all tied to Old Testament teachings and remembering all that Moses had brought to the people, to what takes place for the rest of the chapter as they prepare for the new Elijah, as they prepare for this Savior. And we'll see three more burdens in the book. Uh, And we'll see today that God will be asked of these people, how have we wearied you? A better word may be, how is it that we are so exhausting to you, Yahweh? chapter, the most well-known passage in Malachi is in regard to the Old Testament tithe, which is different than the New Testament tithe, and you may believe, well, that's not true. Well, you didn't show up with fruits today. (laughs) Nobody hauled in some tomatoes. If you have those, we have people who can do things with them. The question that is asked in Malachi chapter 3 is, well, how have we robbed you? You have robbed me, God says. And rather than the hearts of the people being contrite and broken over their sin, well, how is it that we're really robbing you? The last that we'll deal with next week, God says, you've said these things against me. And their reply again is, well, what is it that we're really saying against you? The burdens of Malachi are, they they differentiate, but there is one consistency in all of them. God keeps bringing stuff up that Israel is doing and they don't realize that stuff is even there. Because they've become so detached and so disconnected from who this Yahweh actually is. They are frustrated, sarcastic, cynical in their response to him because they don't see that what they are doing is wrong. Now when we preach about passages that took place 2,500 years ago, we've got to be careful not to... um, outkick our coverage, if you will. But honestly, in the lives of believers, how many of us are so detached, disconnected, disenfranchised with who this Yahweh actually is that if he were to say to our face, this is what you're doing, our hearts would say, I mean, how am I bothering you so badly? Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied you? When you say, everyone who does what is evil in the Lord's sight, and he's delighted with them, or else, where is this God of justice? Their question is, God, why aren't you dealing with sin the way that we believe that sin should be dealt with? Why are you so patient with these people? See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant that you delight in. See, he's coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and and like launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will, he will purify the sons of Levi and he will refine them like gold and silver and they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. An offering of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. I will come to you in judgment. 
And I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to his resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. Because I, the Lord, have not changed you descendants of Jacob, have not been destroyed since the days of your ancestors. You have turned from my statutes. You haven't kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Well, how do we rob you, they ask, by not making the payment of the tenth and the contributions? You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open floodgates of heaven and pour out blessings for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not ruin the produce of your land, and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. The two things that we get to address today in this passage is the idea of exhausting God and robbing God. These two primary burdens as God looks at these people who claim to be His. Letting them know that they are seeing Him and mistreating Him. They are disconnected from Him, taking Him for granted. Yet reason, they don't realize it. They don't realize it because they've not been led to realize it. They don't realize it because they've not received leadership when it was presented. They don't realize it for numerous reasons. But they're not in line with what Yahweh would have them to see. They're not in line with what Yahweh would have them to hear. They're not in line with what God would have them to see. When you get to this passage and you move beyond that very first, that introductory wearying concept... God begins to take us in a direction. Now, everything that's taken place before this has been, let's go back. Moses did this, and Moses was legitimate, because we don't abbreviate, we don't abbreviate words like legit around here. I mispronounce enough not to shorten words wrongly. We look back and we see Moses did incredible things for us. Moses delivered us. He brought us where we need to go. He gave us direction. Moses was wonderful. But I'm taking you somewhere else. I'm going to provide for you a messenger. Now, this is pointing to someone really important. But we've really got a... Uh, we have an, an opening messenger, and then we have the primary messenger. Because whenever you read through these Old Testament prophets, there is one person who offers transition and, and deliverance and moving us toward the, the Messiah. And that is John the Baptist. We can see John the Baptist in the New Testament very... Um, he reflected much of what we see in these Old Testament prophets. He's preparing a messenger, but he's not just preparing a message. He's preparing for a better message. He's preparing for a hope-filled message. 
He's preparing these people for one who will fill every need. He's preparing them for our Lord Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17 show us that. If you're a note taker, you go home, you break this down, wicka wicka. When you get there, if you read John 1, 14 through 17, you see how these things line up. But with this Messiah coming, with this Savior of the world on the way, the people begin to be, have to consider, well, we've been promised this, but have we really thought about what we've been wanting? Have we thought that when he comes, when we consider this Messiah, this Yeshua, this Savior in full, that he is going to do things that we do not want him to do in us. That he is going to bring to the surface the, the things that take place in our hearts that need to be removed. And in that approach... He's going to display the wickedness in us. And that may be painful. Fixing things is, is so strange. You're correcting things that we don't see to be wrong. But when the reality of, when the time comes, we'll notice that thing that I ignored, there's pain there. So I, I have... This weird... I, I've reached that point in my life where I have old man injuries. And when they happened when I was a young man, I did not notice them. Can I get anybody to testify in here this morning? You're hooping in your backyard with your buddies. Everybody is playing in running shoes because no one has any sense. You sprain your ankle really bad. You just get up and limp around on it for the next 15 to 20 minutes. You finish the game and you ignore it. But that ankle sprain wasn't really a sprain. You probably did some really bad things to some ligaments. Beyond the ligament damage, there's a possibility that you broke that. And every time you get on an airplane or every time you sit in a car for too long, this is really a test of, I'm testifying myself. When you get out of said car, you just limp around. Because there's something there that wasn't addressed that needed to be addressed. The nation of Israel is giddy for the idea of Messiah because when Messiah comes, their idea of who he actually is is someone who will come in and overthrow whatever government is in charge of them at the moment. And make no mistake, they rarely have moments where someone's not telling them what to do. But this Messiah comes from more than an earthly kingdom. And this Messiah comes from more than just to establish earthly kingdoms for us. This Messiah is much more interested in our hearts being postured toward him than how much prosper we have in our own lives. This Messiah, he gives examples in verse, in verse 2 and kind of moves through those to verse 5. He says, There's, uh, you can, who can endure the day that he's coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. Refiner's fire, impurities being lifted up so they could be removed for those who were right in the sight of Yahweh. The idea of the launderer's bleach lets us know how unclean these people actually were and how they had become satisfied in their lack of sanctification. How they had found hope in something that was not hope-filled. 
They looked at their current condition, evaluated their, their current predicament, and they said, everything's okay. And God says, I'm coming with bleach. We had a interaction at the Po home just a few weeks ago. I don't know what your role is at your house. I'm not good at things, really, especially uh, computers. If anybody in here is, I know we're in Android world, but if you are an Apple person and you would like to see me afterwards, I have a problem that may lead to me breaking something. But if you can help me, that'd be cool. Um, but one of my roles at the house is to make sure that the, the toilets are clean. Now, I don't have to do the bathrooms at all. Hope takes care of that. But I am the, the toilet person, like the dirty job person. I get the worst job. And I have a, a, a plan, really. I've bought these wipes that I've shared with you about before. I feel like they are a gift from Sovereign Yahweh to us. You buy them, you flush them. You never have to think about them again. But from time to time, when you have three boys at your house, it needs a little more cleaning than that. So I have this red bucket that I will put various cleaning agents in. And I try to do this so that Hope doesn't see me because uh, she wants me to use bleach. And I don't want to deal with bleach because I don't want to deal with like losing color in whatever I'm wearing. But you put the bleach in and, and based on what she tells me and based on the fact that my hands have changed colors... It does more work than anything else. God has consistently said to the nation of Israel throughout the, the Old Testament, he's, he's used the law to serve as a guardrail. Like, I'm going I'm to give you these things, and they're going to take you toward the Messiah, but your hearts are still wicked. Something has to deal with the wickedness of your hearts, and there's someone who is coming who's refiner's fire, going to remove the impurities from you, like these day-to-day -day impurities that the, the believing people have. And he's going to take all that's unclean in you in this world and make, let's not make any bones about it. There is uncleanliness in us as God's people in this world. This Jesus who is coming is going to extract all of these things. He's going to remove all of these things. That's the hope. And this is not something that says it's going to happen on the day he shows up. But there will be a consistent process that takes place in the life of someone who follows after Jesus where he is removing and extracting and pulling things from us. Are we tuned into the idea that that needs to happen? Or have we become so satisfied, so complacent, so caught up in the little kingdom that we build that we are missing that the kingdom that he's come to establish? Happy Father's Day. This sanctifying process of Jesus. That for the righteous, this will rid them of impurities. This Yeshua who shows up. But for the wicked, it will destroy the impurity altogether. Meaning that they will be destroyed. White clothes in the Bible, they, they symbolize purity. And the nation of Israel, whenever God gives speak to their white clothes, he, it's almost as if he's looking at them and saying, you're wearing this, but you've not taken any consideration into why you're even wearing this. All right, so God, that's cool. I'm glad that God wants to establish a king. What does God care about? Does the Bible tell us what God cares about? I mean, in my heart, I think God cares about what I care about. 
The reason that I think that God cares about what I care about is because I prefer to be my own God. Why do I need a God to tell me to do hard stuff? I can tell me to do good stuff. Wicked, impure hearts in us. I will come to you, verse 5, in judgment. Now this judgment's good for you, but it's coming nonetheless. And I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers. Against those who swear falsely. We're good with that, right? We're good to remove the sorcerers and the adulterers from our midst. I mean, whenever we see someone really leaning in to sorcery or, or wickedness or, or de- demonic, um, what we have considered to be demonic things, we, oh, for sure, God's against that. But he's also against those who swear falsely. He's against those who oppress the hired worker. He's against those who suppress the widow. He's against those who mistreat the fatherless. This passage doesn't seem to be exposing the hearts of the people of Malachi. I mean, their hearts are long removed. How many of us is this ripping into? For the sake of my kingdom, how many other things do I ignore? For the sake of my personal advancement, how many things do I ignore? Have you ever noticed that we, we tend to think people who are taking advantage of their wealth are always the people who have more stuff than we do? Because we've drawn this line that we've got everything figured out. And I don't know the last time I had things figured out. God seems to care for those who are on the margins of society just as much as he cares about what current pop culture phenomenon we're expressing our frustration over. He cares about children without fathers. He cares about children who fathers and mothers want to abandon. He cares about workers and systems that are demeaning to them. He cares about the widow. He cares about the orphan. And it seems that he cares about those things just as much as he cares about what little Nas X put on his Instagram. God cares. God cares. And against those who deny justice, and they do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So God is evidently exhausting to these people because he is asking them to expose godliness rather than godlessness. But the burden transitions and it moves to another place. The second burden that we see is robbing God. We've moved from God. They say, how have we robbed you? And God says, well, here's how you've robbed me. Because I, the Lord, he, he, I love this. Verse 6 is kind of a transition phrase in the text. And, and it means, he says, because I've not changed... I've not changed the rules. You've changed the way you're playing. 
had some friends who, who lost jobs recently, and, and in the conversation, they said, the, I just felt like the goalposts got moved on us. What they expected of us changed from day to day. And God is saying here, what I've called my people to be, refined people, that's not changed. It hasn't changed at all. But you, descendants of Jacob, have been destroyed. Wordplay is important in the Bible, and here's why. God's really into names. And if we've spent any time considering names in the Old Testament, we've thought through some of these. Like, the name Jacob means grappler, but you find out when you read through the Scriptures that whenever God refers to the nation of Israel as Israel, He's talking about their strength. He's talking about those who are victorious with God. And whenever He uses the name Jacob in the mouths of these prophets, here's what He's ultimately saying to them. You've kind of regressed, and I can't believe you're doing it again. Moms and dads, you know exactly how this works. You've got those kids at your house. You've got your sweetie boo names for them when they're being sweetie boos. That's what we call one of our kids. He would kill me if he knew that I told you that. But he's my second child, and he has a, and he has a gravelly voice. Daddy. But then you call them by their whole name. Anybody feel that? <laughs> and the kid just knows when they're called by that name. Oh man, he said Shepherd McLean. Shepherd Poe. Magnolia. I never call her Magnolia. Until things are bad. He says to these people, you've regressed to being Jacob. I can't believe you do that, but I'm kind of believing you do it because I'm moving you along. God is saying that I am faithful, I am, I am faithful and I am immutable and, and I have this faithful immutability. God's patience has kept you from being destroyed. That's what he says to Israel. And it's what he says to us. You think you're keeping God happy with how good you are? His faithfulness to you will always surpass your faithfulness. And it fills in the gaps of your faithlessness and mine. Then we jump into the robbing God sermon, which is a portion of our passage that has been treated, mistreated, convoluted, misused, abused. Since the days of your ancestors, you have turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me, God says, and I'm going to return to you. Return. So, in the conversation of response, what we find more often than not is people will allow the guilt and weight of what they're doing to cause them to acknowledge, oh man, that was dumb. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I behaved that way. I can't believe I treated someone like that. And they turn, like, I'll just... Ugh. But repentance in the Bible has nothing to do with just turning from. God, in this passage, has told them over and over to remember your guardrails. But now that you're repenting, and now that you're turning away, I want you to turn to the Deliverer. You turn to the message of Yahweh. 
God turned to him, he says. Repentance is this idea that runs throughout the scriptures. It's this change of direction. It's not just an acknowledgement that you're in the wrong direction. It's going in the right direction. The theme of turning from and turning to, it runs. It doesn't just run, it sprints from the Old Testament into the New Testament. As John the Baptist has a pocket full of bugs and honey and he's yelling at everybody to turn away. John called these people to repent. Then Jesus showed them why they needed to repent and he showed them where their repentance could rest. We get beyond that and we get to to, to the, the letters... Paul keeps calling people to embrace the refining fire of God. That's not the language that he always uses, but you embrace the idea that God wants to get these things out of you. If we never believe that in, the, in our walk as a believer that there are impurities sitting and resting, then we've got a major problem. We're ignoring We're ignoring what God has said to us over and over. We are the people who are saying to God, How have you really loved me? How have we despised you? How have I defiled your name? How have I wearied you? How did I rob you? If we don't see the impurities in us, we see this isn't a passage that's just about them. This is a passage about us. Because God is really after our hearts. Peter talks about repentance. Peter had one sermon. My, my, I have a discipleship group that I met with this past fall. Through the, he has one sermon. It's four lines. Feel free to preach it. He would say to whoever would listen, God sent his son. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. Repent. After he said it to 3,000 people, he said it to 1,000 more, and anybody would li- that would listen, turn away from your sin but turn to your deliverer. This is interesting that he would talk about this robbing God at this portion of the text. Because you've got these priests in the church. This is a contemporary of a guy named Nehemiah. He came to build a wall, not the wall that comes to our mind through to weird conversations, but he came to build a wall. He came to build a wall to protect God's people, and that's what took place. And in chapter 13, it's a relationship with Nehemiah that God points out. Nehemiah leaves and he comes back and there's this weird deal taking place in the place that he'd walked away from between a guy named Eliashib and Tobiah. You probably not dropped those on your kids because they're villains in the story. These are both Jewish names, but from what we can tell, they had intermarried because this whole story is one story. It doesn't undo other stories. And chapter 1 through 4 of Malachi is about the idea of people wedding themselves to false gods. He comes and he sees these people. And when he sees these people, this high priest and his cohort, they have abused and mistreated the message of Yahweh. They have abused and mistreated the message of Yahweh, not just with their words, but they were literally stealing from God. And they had separated themselves from God's people so much that they didn't even see that it was a problem. Will a man rob God? Yeah, you're robbing me, God says. How? By not making the payments of the tents and the contributions. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, you're still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Return to me, God says. So you can at least understand 
Return to me is the are the words of Yahweh. Return to me and test me. God is saying to these people who have been misled by terrible humans, turn from your sin and turn toward me. You've not even done anything to experience how good I really am. Now before we go thinking this is like prosperity gospel stuff, it's not. He's talking to an entire nation that is dealing with famine. And, and, and as God deals with this, he's saying, the re- these things are taking place. Because you have given your affection to false gods and, and unhealthy places. The prophet starts by talking to these people individually. Because we see that turning to God has to start somewhere. Turning to God has to start somewhere. Lots of conversation right now about revival, personal revival, public revival, national revival. If you're having a conversation about revival that ends with your nation, that ain't the God we find in Scripture. He calls all people everywhere to himself. He has a hope for every tribe, tongue, and nation. He wants to make much of himself to the ends of the earth. This passage is one that's taking us to consider this God. He says this, see if I won't open the floodgates. I'll, I, will, I will bless you. Now this is not so much about, this is about their need. It's not about their greed. Like we can think that about pastors. We can, we can turn this into, we're, we're driving in the right part of Houston. And we're like, that's what that's talking about. This is where if we're not careful, our faith will turn into Ferrari owners. God doesn't need that. That's not what he's saying. We're not comparing those two things. This is God saying, this is not God saying you're going to manipulate my blessing through your tithe giving. This is God being the meter. That's not a word, but we're going to make it one. This is God being the one who meets the needs of his people. He is the need meter. And you're going to, you're going to foreign gods to have your needs met and you haven't come to me at all. How much are you going to foreign gods to have your needs met? I mean, you've probably not showed up at the Moab, the Moabites God. But you've probably showed up at one. Bringing tithes in this passage to, to support the priests, they were robbing from him, especially this Eliashab character. And they were ignoring the landless poor, which are a huge portion of this text. And God is saying, I'm a really big God who can meet your really big, your really big needs. Don't give, my, don't give my glory to somebody else. He actually says this in Isaiah 42, verse 8. You might want to write this down or share it with a friend or put it on your Instagram. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to false idols. King James reads graven images. It's weird whenever you're working with metals, especially in the scripture, that you're working for shine. It's so strange to me to think about golden calves and how, I mean, subconsciously, secondarily, those things that we we shined and shaped, how those idols in the Bible would give off a reflection. And what they were really reflecting, because they were false gods, was the reflection of the people who were worshiping them. Because we really like to worship ourselves, and that's just like our false gods do. 
these false things, these things that we have turned our attention and affection to that are not Yahweh, the Lord of armies, will give you a reflection. And that reflection is you. And that reflection is me. It's me being satisfied in lesser things. Why don't you just try me, God says. Instead of trying to find your joy and trying to find your satisfaction, every joy and satisfaction exists. To look to me. I'm going to rebuke the devourer for you, God says. I'm going to get rid of everything that's laying waste to your people. Now remember, these passages call for response. So interesting, there's a place in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus meets with a guy who is a ruler. He's not just a ruler, he's a young ruler, like a hip ruler, rich young ruler. Like everyone thinks he's the coolest guy in town. He was setting on a journey, this Jesus. A man ran up, he kneels before Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus just stops and why are you calling me good? Now this isn't Jesus saying he's bad. It's Jesus saying, hey, if you're acknowledging my goodness, you're acknowledging my godness. Are you sure you're ready for that? You know the commandments. Don't murder. That seems like an easy list, like base level. Don't kill nobody. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. But this brother's got a heart issue. His heart issue isn't that he was out slaughtering people or adulterating. His issue was not that he had dishonored his father and mother. His issue is that the primary reflection that he he got when he thought about God was his own. And how he was going to meet his needs in every way he could meet his needs. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. And he said to him, well, you like one thing. Go and sell everything you have to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then follow me. But he was dismayed. And he went away sad and grieving because he had so many possessions. This isn't about you or me having stuff. It's about our stuff having us. And reflecting the wickedness in each and every one of our hearts. That's why Jesus is about the painful process of refining me and refining you. Of bleaching me and bleaching you. These are painful, necessary things for God's people. Look, today it's fine if you hear this sermon and you have a response. But let's just be honest. Every one of us has a response to God when he calls these things out in us. By ignoring and deflecting and saying passages like this are not about me and not about you, you're responding. And you're simply saying, no, I don't want to hear it. And that's fine if that's what you do, but just acknowledge that's what you're doing. And I need to acknowledge that's what I'm doing. Well, we're responding when we say to God, I'm going to give you everything that I have. And that's great. But just realize that as you respond that way, God doesn't find pleasure in you because you've given him all your stuff. He finds pleasure because you realize who he is. God calling his people to think about what it means to to respond to him. Always being a responsive people. So my prayer today as we consider this passage is that you will be a responsive people. I'm sad. You can be satisfied with your no. But what if God has lifted up a mirror for you in the graven images that you've created and the graven images that I've created and said, hey, your real problem 
isn't the fact that you've got the God of the Ammonites or the Moabites. Your real problem is not even really that you've got a God of politics and, poli and, and political um, alignment. Your real problem is not that you've got stuff. Your real problem is you. And if you address you, it, it would really, really help this refining process. And you would see it and sense it. And you would say, God, I'm going to test you and see that you're good. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As our worship band comes to the stage, we're grateful for them, so thankful. If you need me, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. I'd love to chat with you, pray for you. If you want to yell at me, we can do that later. Just know you're loved, and know that I believe we're all in this together. I would encourage us just to posture our heart and see, and really line ourselves up with being people who reflect Jesus show Jesus Father as we sing I pray that we will realize that we are not singing to this roof but we are singing to God most high we ask this in your name